Welcome to the Beeson Podcast coming to you from Beeson Divinity School on the campus of Samford University. Now your hosts, Doug Sweeney and Kristen Padilla. Welcome to the Beeson Podcast. I'm your host, Doug Sweeney, here with my co-host, Kristen Padilla. Did you know that the month of March is Women's History Month? We want to feature on the show today the history of some exceptionally courageous Christian women who witnessed the gospel in the Confessing Church in Germany during World War II. And we have some learned guests with us, especially well-prepared to help us do so. Before Kristen introduces them, I want to invite you back to campus on Monday, March 20 at 7 p.m., when our students will lead a special service of worship in conjunction with Women's History Month. It will be in Reed Chapel, the main undergraduate chapel here at Sanford University, and it will include prayers for women and scriptural reflection on the ways in which God has used women in the history of salvation. Then come back the next morning, Tuesday, March 21 at 11 a.m., to Beeson's beautiful Hodges Chapel for the first of our annual Conger Lectures on Preaching. Dr. Scott Gibson, the Garland Professor of Preaching at Truett Seminary, will deliver these lectures March 21, 22, and 23 on the topic of the preacher's character. For more on these events, go to beesondivinity.com slash events. All right, Kristen, who is with us on the program today? We have on the show uh, Dr. Paul House, who some of you listeners may already know. He is Professor of Divinity at Beeson Divinity School, where he teaches courses in Old Testament and Hebrew. And we also have with him uh, Dr. Angela Ferguson. She is an Assistant Professor of German in Stanford University's Howard College of Arts and Sciences. So welcome both Dr. Ferguson and Dr. House to the Beeson Podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. We always like to begin the show by getting to know something more personal about our guest. And Dr. Ferguson, I'm looking at you. This is your first time on the show. And so I thought we could begin by learning more about you, um, your background, where are you from, your faith journey, and then how you came to Samford. And then following your answer, I wonder, Paul, if you could tell us what you've been up to these days. So uh, Angela, why don't we start with you? Well, it's a bit of a, a long story, but I actually grew up in Germany. So that's what brought me to teach German. That's why I teach German. And my father was a pastor. And so my faith journey began at home, hearing him and learning from him. And I, if I can share a couple of little anecdotes, um, I came to faith in Christ when I was nine years old. And I remember having a conversation with my dad about really wanting to follow Christ. And, um, but my family had this rule that we couldn't get baptized until we were 13. So I had to wait for four years. Um, but one really amazing thing about that, two amazing things. First, I really remember my baptism very, very well. I was baptized by my own father. Um, and just what I learned from him and the conversations that we would have at home, all of that is kind of carried forward in my faith life. But also, my dad used to lead groups to the Holy Land, and I got to go with him when I was 10. So I actually had my first communion before I got baptized. Don't tell many people. Anyway, um, but we were in the Garden of Gethsemane, and so he, he knew that Jesus was my personal Savior. So he knew that I was saved, and he said, you know, normally you wouldn't do this till after you're baptized, but 
you get special permission today. So those are just these kind of little powerful moments that, that have stayed with me. Um, but my life with Christ has been one of kind of a continual um, following and a continual kind of being with Christ throughout. Um, what brought me to Sanford is also a little bit roundabout because I'd never heard of Sanford, but I was in Germany. I was in Berlin, um, and one of the professors from here, Hugh Floyd, came over with a group of students, and I ended up helping him. And then he came back to the U.S., and the provost at the time came over with a group of nurses, and they were interested in the deaconesses' houses. So I took them around and um, translated for them, and that's kind of what connected me with Sanford. Hmm. That's so. wonderful. What's been going on with you? Yes, uh, I continue to teach Old Testament theology uh, this semester, and I'm teaching a course in Isaiah, so having a good time with that, people learning, and I'm trying to continue to learn. Um, also with Angela, I've been working on a project biography of Fritz Onosh, who was a partner with Dietrich Bonhoeffer in his uh, seminary ministry, and it's been a privilege to uh, work with Angela. We had met a long time ago, but as we were, so I was trying to do some of the work on this project, um, it became evident to me that I needed help with uh, particularly the German, and remembered her, and she was willing to engage in this journey. So we've been having a lot of fun learning, and less fun writing, but we're getting at it. Great. As we said to our listeners already, this is an episode on the women of the Confessing Church. So why don't I uh, ask a couple of questions now that just get our listeners ready to process the rest of the interview. Uh, first of all, maybe Dr. House, we'll start with you. Can you tell our audience what was the Confessing Church? Yeah, in a nutshell, it is. it was a, probably best described as a movement of faithful confessing uh, believers confessing the sense of orthodox confession of faith, belief in Scripture. Um, that exists from 1933 to 1945, the entire time of the, of the Third Reich. Uh, founded really in 1934 around the Barman and Dahlem declarations. And then was fairly strong, uh, facing lots of opposition, particularly 1937, 38, leading up to uh, the World War II, with most of the pastors and um, lay people drafted into the army, the work suffered during World War II but continued. And that's part of the story that the women particularly had a great part in, though not just the women. So it was always a minority group within the Protestant church. I don't think ever more than 25% or so. Uh, certainly existed across uh, all of Germany, which I think our readers would, or our hearers would be happy to hear is, uh, or interested in learning anyway, included most of Poland. What's Poland now? All of that was Germany, and a whole lot of the story that we're studying took place in Pomerania. So, yeah, it was, it was a great group of people, inspired in many ways, but hardly flawless. Uh, they, they were people like us. And Dr. Ferguson, uh, lots of Beeson-connected people know about and love Dietrich Bonhoeffer. 
but we want to focus on the women of the Confessing Church. Can you give our listeners just a little general bit of information on who these women were? Um, well, today we're going to talk about two particular women, but these were the, the wives of pastors in both cases. Um, but other women that were involved were also their, the, the mothers, the mother-in-laws. Um, and these women, you know, when you're a pastor's wife, you're really part of that office. And that means that they had both the privileges, but also the responsibilities of that. And these women took that very seriously. And so when their husbands were not available to lead the churches, to um, be with the people who were suffering, the women took on those roles. And they also took on more official roles. So in some cases, preaching, um, doing funerals, you know, things like that, all the things that a pastor would have done had he been there. Hmm. Well, let's get into these women. You mentioned two, and I know uh, from Paul that you've been studying and very interested in a woman by the name of Hildegard Schoenherr. Mm -hmm. What can you tell us about her education, her marriage, church service? And then on a more personal note, how has her story, her life encouraged you? Wow. Um, yeah, so Hildegard Schoenherr was originally Hildegard Enteline. What's really interesting about her, but also about the man who becomes her husband, is that they did not come from church families. So a lot of these pastors came out of the homes. They were the sons of pastors, and so that would be carried on, or the daughters of pastors would marry a pastor. So they kind of knew the life. Um, she came from outside of that. Her father worked in business. He worked for Siemens, and um, but... She was drawn to the life of faith. So she ended up, she's a very bright young woman. She ended up going to Berlin to go to university. She studied philosophy and she studied theology in Berlin. She got to know Dietrich Bonhoeffer, got to know the, the group of people that were there um, in that way, met her husband um, kind of in as these groups of the confessing church would, would get together. Um, she herself was he describes her as a modern female student of the time. So she would have been um, much more modernly, not not as conservatively dressed maybe as some of the other women. He shares with us, now this is not appropriate for us, but for that context, she smoked. This was a sign that she was very modern. Um, so he was really drawn to her. And she, he is Adler Schoenherr. He became... Later on in East Germany, he becomes a bishop of the the uh, evangelical church, the Protestant church um, in former um, East Germany. Um, but the two of them came together, got married, and she, from the very beginning, they married in 1936. They were married by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and they were partners in the work from the very beginning. He, she was both his helper in physical things, but also his intellectual equal. They could have discussions. He really admired her knowledge, for example, of Hegel and philosophy. He really felt that um, she brought a lot. Um, so, yeah, it just, it, it feels like so much. I'm, I might go on and on, but um, he was um, called up to be a soldier in 1940, and then from about 40 to 42, and then again, in 44, and then he was there through the end of the war, and then he was a prisoner of war for a year. So they were apart again for two years. Um, and she, while he was gone, she led the confirmation classes. 
Um, she did funerals. She kept that congregation going. She, even while he was there, the pastor's wife did all of the work with women, all of the work with children, all of the work with young people that the church was doing. Um, the pastor's wife would host people in their home, help make all of that possible. Um, Hildegard Schoenherr in particular, you know, the two of them, they, they had a total of six children over the course of their lives. So she also was caring for these young children. She was also caring for her mother-in-law. Um, she had the, her first three children in, they married in 36. She had the first one in 37 and then 39 and then 40. Um, obviously there's the, the break because they're being kept apart because of he's off serving as a soldier. Um, they briefly are able to come back together in 44. And then she has a baby in 45, but that baby dies at birth. And she suffered from sepsis at that moment. And I share that. I know that's a bit of a, a frightening thing, um, but it really, that harmed her health and it weakened her, but it didn't stop her from being faithful to the work that was before her. And when he finally comes back, she that illness is one she did not ever get over. She had a weakness in her heart from that point forward. She ended up dying in 1963. Um because of what had occurred to her then. They did have three other children after he gets back after the war. Um, but she took care of everyone and all of the business of the church. So she cared for his mother. She cared for their children. And when he came back, he said, there was no sign that my mother or my children had ever suffered anything. They hadn't suffered hunger. So the only one who was physically damaged was Hildegard. She had taken all of that upon her. Um, so you also asked me, like, what is it about her story that really um, inspires me? It, it inspires me that she, in spite of difficulty, in spite of everything, remained faithful to the call of God on her life. Um, and I'm going to include a, another piece, and this is from, so uh, everything I know about her comes from Albrecht Schoenherr's memoirs about his own life. So it's like you're, you're picking out the little bits and pieces about her that you can. Um, but he shared that when she died, the person who preached her funeral preached that she had sometimes struggled with faith. And I you know, you sit there with that and you think, I get that. She's encountering some incredibly difficult things and it leads her to question, but she never stopped being faithful, even on the days when maybe she didn't feel so certain. So I just, I, I find that really, really powerful. Um, and my prayer for, for myself is to be faithful to the goal, to be faithful to what God has placed before me, to be pay faithful to the work um, in the way that she was. It's just an incredible thing. That's our prayer for our listeners as well. So Dr. House, the other woman we want to single out for special attention today was named Margaret Onash. We know you know a lot about her. Interestingly, faithful listeners to the podcast may remember that a while back we talked with you a little bit about a man named Fritz Onash, but 
They don't know about Margaret Onash. Who is she, and why is she important? Yes, she has been um, such a part of what Angela and I have been studying, and it has been such a delight and a surprise. I, I studied Onash first in relationship to the seminary work with Bonhoeffer. So I knew he had a wife named Margaret. I knew uh, that they had uh, children and this sort of thing. I'd been to where uh, the seminary was in now in Poland and gotten a sense of the kind of life they had, but I didn't really know much about her. read a uh, an article about Fritz. Uh, it was dated 2001 by a man named Friedrich Bartels. And um, through Kristen's help and all, we got in touch with Friedrich Bartels, and he was able to share lots of unpublished documents with us. And eventually including um, a 40-page memoir by Margaret, unpublished. But she wrote in 1993, so when she was 80. And she described how she grew up in a pastor's home. Uh, Eberhard Betke, uh, Bonhoeffer's close friend and biographer, was her brother. And their father died when they were young. And uh, as other women said, the brothers got the money to study at university. So eventually, she goes to Berlin and studies at a place called Burkhardt House, which was a training college for women who wanted to be in community work, church work, deaconesses. And this was the spring of 1937. And so she goes to, she starts going to church at Dahlem, uh, where, near where her seminary is located. And her pastor was Martin Niemöller, who was then jailed in July 1937 and was jailed the entirety of the war. She and the women students of the other women protested. They were arrested, taken to jail for a while. And so she had a taste of what, as she said, hundreds of pastors were jailed that same summer. She had known Fritz Onosh's sister from when they were in school together at a girl's school. So she came to meet him in that way with uh, that sister's urging. She sent Fritz a greeting when he was in jail for six weeks in 1937. And as she said, that's how our relationship started. So they eventually um, married in 1939, days after the war started. They had hoped to work together in the seminary, but instead, uh, with the seminary being closed due to the war, they moved to Stettin, um, and he worked in the regional office of Confessing Church, preaching all over the country where the, past, the churches were orphaned. They had no pastor now because of the war, the call-up. Some of these places were tiny, uh, as we've been tracing where he spoke. She became well-known famous for her hospitality. Now again, she's trained in biblical studies and she sees her work as service of the church and community outreach. So their apartment was often filled with um, former students who were on leave from the army. Uh, they eventually were known for taking in refugees, including some communists and Jewish people. Um, one witness of the time said, I often thought she had no comfortable husband. It wasn't easy to, to be the wife of this person. 
But when asked how they did all this on 150 marks a month, how they took in these people, fed these people, organized uh, things like care packages to Bonhoeffer when he was in prison, um, she asked as an old person, she looked back and said, those were very rich times for us. So there, there wasn't this sense of how hard it was. She did live a long life. When Fritz was uh, murdered by Soviet soldiers in March 1945, uh, she and her three children, all under the age of four, right, uh, began this trek out of Kuzlin and then back again in which they're Christian. she just testifies their Christian faith. But how hard it was um, to march... How they put it, Angela, that the, the two kids, two of the kids could, or no, the baby could ride on a cart, but the other kids, and one could be carried, the other one, he was three, there's nothing for it, he had to walk. So it's this kind of story, and reading her memoirs as an 80-year-old with a clear sight, and still saying the faith was worth it and, and meant everything, in the loss of a husband, in the loss of um, so many things, and eventually lost their homeland because all the people were were uh, pressed west across the Oder, so they lost their home, Pomerania and all that um, countryside. But just a faithful Christian woman who also had strains. Uh, her first child died during a, a bombing raid. I mean, she was giving birth and kept... Don't quite know why, but the child did not survive. And then after that, she really had to steal her nerves to be able to stand all these bombing raids they lived through. Uh, so it wasn't she didn't act like it was effortless or there were no problems, but it was this trust in Christ that the day they were leaving Kozlene as forced out, and then a couple of times away, she recalls the scripture they read in the morning and the prayers they said before they then set out and how they felt God's providence uh, as they moved. So her church work was largely hospitality, largely opening up her home and giving it over to people she knew and didn't know. So I, I think it's such a different kind of strong witness. Uh, these, the confessing church that the Schoenhairs were in was small. It was established in, at a state owner could say who was going to be the pastor. Fritz and Margaret's, a lot of their work was in places like that whose pastor was away in the war. And so there, it's, it's, an, it's an important couple to remember, both of these couples. One that lived all the way through the war and became really the most prominent student that Bonhoeffer ever had as far as church work went. One who, because of how history went, completely almost forgotten, and Margaret with him. So, a bit of privilege to kind of recapture some of this. Um, hope we can pass it on to readers. You know, with her hospitality, the other thing I would add in is you've mentioned they're only making 150 marks, it's being donated. The food was from rations, like they were. And Fritz grew a bunch of food too. Yeah, they were finding a way to to make those rations spread. I mean, that to me is such a you know bread and fishes kind of miracle. It is, and it's one of the last letters Bonhoeffer writes to um, Bacon. He says, "Thank Margaret for sending this 
package of food and cigars to to be in prison uh, because I know you the children are going to need the food and Fritz um, still smokes so but they were also masterful at getting people to donate rations and doing things like you're saying this multiplying so yeah again I think of I think of them with admiration for all the different ways once they decided we must put others first and be there for others all the different ways God showed them how to do that. I've heard uh, deaconesses mentioned, so I'm wondering what other women ministered in the Confessing Church that you might commend to our listeners? Were there deaconesses? Well, tell them what a deaconess actually was in this context, really. Well, <laughs> you're going to be a lot better at that. But the, the deaconesses were um, something that you have in the evangelical churches of Germany. You did also have ones for the Baptist churches of Germany. So I had brought this this book about the Baptist churches. Um there were also deaconesses there. These are women who were single. They did, were not married. They devoted their lives to the service of God. They would often live in community, in houses, and quite often they would do, um, they would minister. So they would help the sick, help the poor, um, and they, they felt God's call. They devoted their lives to, to God's call in their lives in that way. Um, I used to joke as a child that, you know, we don't have any Baptist nuns. I can be the first Baptist nun. And then I found out that actually there were lots of Baptist nuns, if we can put it that way. Um, but they did incredible, incredible work. Um, I had the a great privilege when I was in Berlin, one of the last times I lived there, of meeting a woman who um, was a deaconess. She was a Baptist deaconess, and she had lived through the war and lived through um, the suffering and um, had had harrowing experiences as a woman when the war ended and the Soviet army came in. So that's and, another piece that gets mentioned. Yeah, along those lines, uh, if I may, it's um, there's a particular person, Bertha von Massau, born 1872, died 1945. She was the head of the Salem Deaconess House in Kuzlin, where the Onashes lived and where Fritz died. Under her leadership, there were four children's homes a school for Protestant nannies, and some other work she had set up. We also know the Jewish boy was able to survive in one of the children's homes, and that they also made rooms available to the confessing church for illegal pastoral exams. So the 73-year-old Berta stayed behind with 25 other sisters, deaconesses. When one of the sisters sought protection from the Russians, Berta was pushed onto the floor and worked over with rifle butts. Still completely powerless, she and the sisters had to leave the deaconess mother house, her life's work, on March 10, 1945. Infected from dysentery, she died April 6, 1945. But her slogan, God buries his workers, but his job goes on, went with the sisters and finally let them find a new home in Minden in Westphalia. So... That's a, a lot of these confessing church stories are really stories of young people, uh, young men and women, some of them married, who were doing these kinds of things. But this is a 73-year-old a deaconess, faithful to the end, connected with um, Fritz Onosh and with his father's church, who was faithful. They didn't have to stay as a point, and they did to try to continue to minister to the people. 
can add in one more story um, about Hilda Schönherr at the end of the war. So Fritz is still a prisoner of war. Um, she and her mother-in-law are there, and the Russians come in, and the Russian commandant um, called for her to come to his office. Now, for women, it was incredibly dangerous and, and horrific things happened at the hands of the Russians. And so she was in profound fear, but she had to obey that call. And she was shocked at what happened, which is this. She walked in the office and he said, why aren't any church services being held? Like, why is no one preaching? She said, well, my husband is a prisoner of war. He said, then you preach. So she preached starting from then and his uh her husband wrote about it so beautifully he said because you you have um the clothing that you would wear to preach it's called your amtskleidung that particular thing that you would wear and he said her amtskleidung her clothing of office was a white apron and her wooden shoes you know so you just have this image of a woman who's coming from all the work she's been doing and then standing before the flock so I just, that was an incredibly powerful story. And Paul, did you tell me that there were a couple of women ordained? Yes, more, more than a couple. Um, I think as many as uh, 10 or 15. And there was an emergence. It was a special act of the old Prussian Union Synod in 1942 that said as, as an emergency order, yes, that, that uh, women could be consecrated or ordained um, for this work. And even aside from that, some of the women who weren't ordained were leading Bible studies, doing the hospital and other visitation work. And ordained or not, what strikes me as so impressive is uh, they weren't so worried about who got the credit. The old saying, you amazing what we get done when you don't care who gets the credit. So I guess the other thing I would say is that the ordained and non-ordained women who were leading Bible studies, uh, Anna Maria Grosch uh, laughed uh, and, and said at one point, they would let us do a Bible study anytime because the leadership couldn't imagine, the Dotsie leadership couldn't imagine anybody would care about a Bible study, but they just talked about how powerful it was that they could meet and have Bible studies. So there's a lot of leading in Bible studies, but yes, there were people uh, and she was one of them, Grosch was one of them who was ordained uh, during World War II. These stories are all so striking and so inspiring, and doubtless we'll have some people who listen to this episode who are military veterans and have some experience of suffering in a time of warfare, but a lot of people who will listen to this don't have experience of this sort of suffering. It, it kind of reminds me, listening to you tell these stories, reminds me of sitting under some of the stories of my in-laws who grew up in um, World War II in the Netherlands, uh, in a town that the Nazis occupied for almost the whole war. Uh, I find the stories inspiring, but then I have to process them in relation to my own experience to figure out what the application or the takeaway for me is going to be. So maybe for people like me, who've never fought in a war, never had my town occupied by a foreign uh, military. Do the two of you, surely you've been working on this book for a long time, you must have kind of noodled over, why are these stories so powerful to people like us, even who can't, don't share all those experiences? 
What do you think? Can you can you edify our listeners with a little bit of word of uh, application for them? What does this have to do with their lives? Their very different lives. And Angela, maybe we could start with you. I'm going to come back to the word faithfulness. They inspire me to be faithful um, to the Bible, to the truth of the Bible, to the truth of what is taught, to be strengthened by that, and to willing to be willing to be open to speaking that truth, even in times when it's difficult, because we don't face those types of difficulties, but we do sometimes face challenges. We face a culture that is not always open to those truths. Some of the truths of the Bible are very hard to live, even when you have an easy life, or maybe especially when you have an easy life. Um, So for me, that's that's the inspiring piece. Yeah, and I would say that as I look at Women's History Month, I think of some of the women in my family. Take my father's mother, who was a Christian person. Through the Great Depression, they lost everything. They did the, they did the whole Missouri to California deal, including they lost. They had a three four month old child die. She lived long enough to survive that. Uh, she in her seventies. Uh, she had one of her sons murdered. She lived through that. Then there was also lots of other difficult days along the way. I think everybody has their difficulties. They're enough to suit us. We we don't put ourselves in the kind of category maybe of the you know the recent war in Ukraine or the the, the, the terrible times of folks in Syria and Turkey are having with an earthquake. But we have enough to suit us. And the question is, is the faithfulness worth it? Now, hopefully you have at least one grandson that notices your your witness. And my grandmother has more than one who did remember that. But also, I would say uh, Margaret and the others would not have ever thought, perhaps, that they would still be helping people who never met them now. And I've not met your in-laws, but their story is important. I argue from the greater to the lesser. I'm always the lesser of this. If they can do that, and the Lord could see them through that, I believe he can help me be faithful now. One last thing. We, we have a lot of uh, Beeson graduates who are men and women who are married now, and some already in school now are studying together. I think it's an encouragement to them to see how these couples who are both have training, knowledge, can serve together, find ways to do that. Well, we always like to end these shows by allowing our guests to share what the Lord has been doing in their lives, teaching you these days that might serve as a word of encouragement to our listeners. So as we round out this episode, I've already been encouraged by what you've had to say, but perhaps there's um, something else that the Lord has been um, working on with you that could be a good way to close out today. The the thing that speaks to me right now is just the privilege that I have to work with young people and share these stories with them so that they can can learn and be inspired. So, um, yeah. And as I've said a couple of times, just helping me be faithful. Yeah, these were deeply committed. These were people deeply committed to their families, multiple generations. And I have been called upon recently to be 
committed to multiple generations of my family and in much less difficult circumstances than they faced. So again, as I've said before, I, I, some days I wonder what I'm doing and how I'm going to do it. And I look out and in my mind's eye, I see Fritz Onosh limping ahead of me, way ahead. And now I see with Margaret, who, who saw so much, did so much, and endured. And so I think, yes, I, they encourage me to say, keep taking this next step. Um, see how they cared for their people. Keep looking at it. Of course, we have biblical examples, but again, what we're talking about is how these women could encourage everybody, including a man like me. Amen. I think we all want to be more like them. You have been listening to Dr. Paul House, professor of Hebrew and Old Testament here at Beeson Divinity School, and Dr. Angela Ferguson, professor of German here at Sanford University. Thanks to both of you for your hard work on these women and the Confessing Church movement. Thanks, listeners, for being with us. Uh, we love you. We're praying for you. We say goodbye for now. You've been listening to the Beeson Podcast. Our theme music is written and performed by Advent Birmingham of the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama. Our engineer is Rob Willis. Our announcer is Mike Pascarello. Our co-hosts are Doug Sweeney and myself, Kristen Padilla. Please subscribe to the Beeson Podcast at beesondivinity.com slash podcast or on iTunes. Thank you.